Good morning, everyone. Listen, it's so good to have you here on NFL Kickoff Sunday. We do NFL Kickoff Sunday for two reasons. One, to get ready for the Chiefs season and to identify like our Chiefs diehards. The second reason we do it is so that we know who to pray for. Um, like as I see the Venturas down here in their Bengals jerseys, it's just too soon. Like it's just too soon for that. So Nathan will pray for you. Jerry's got his Cowboys jersey. Where's Copta in his Buccaneers jersey? Like I'm seeing people like one of our pastors, Scott Courtney, is wearing a Russell Wilson jersey like that just is hot off the presses. So like we're just trying to figure out who we need to pray for as a church. Casey Wolf today was hosted and shown around our church by one of our student pastors, Zach Beloy, who's wearing a Detroit Lions jersey. And when I apologized to Casey Wolf and said, man, I'm sorry that he'd wear, you know, a different jersey as he showed you around today, Casey Wolf said, don't worry, we don't consider them an NFL team anymore. Um, so like, <laughs> you're good because you're like right between college um, and the pros, Zach. Um, but like, we're so glad that you're here. If I've offended you, um, you should tell someone. After church, Ryan will be out in the atrium. <laughs> And you can tell him uh, that your feelings were hurt. We're in Matthew chapter 18. That's where we're going to hang out in our Bible study time today. If you brought your Bibles, Matthew 18 is where we are. We're in a, a month called Vision Month where we are studying Scripture, trying to get a vision for this fall in our church and very specifically next year as a congregation. Matthew 18 is the first full chapter in, in the four Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, the stories of Jesus and his ministry, where the whole chapter is given talking about how Christians interact in the church. And we've been in Matthew chapter 18 learning like what God's vision is for Christians in the church. We started learning that God's vision for Christians in the church is to raise up the next generation. So not only those who are young in age, but those who are young in the faith, like God's vision for the church is that we raise up the next generation spiritually. Last week we had a discipleship panel that I just love to kind of sit in and listen into as we listen to some of the members of our ministry team talk about what discipleship was and how you'd be discipled in their areas. My favorite line of the entire day was when our student director, Becca Alvord, when she said, uh, students do not have the junior Holy Spirit. They have the Holy Spirit, and we need to start taking teenagers and their faith seriously. I just love that. I love her fire and passion to disciple teenagers and students. Today, we're going to talk about kind of the tension of spiritual community. Next Sunday on Anniversary Sunday, we'll talk about our 2023 vision and what God is calling us to. And then I've got to ask you if you can be to be here on Sunday, September 25. One of probably our biggest come and see Sundays of the year, one of my good friends in ministry and evangelist by the name of Adrian Dupre is going to be here. He's going to speak a message that day that will guarantee that you know where you are spiritually and what your next step is by the end of it. If you have a friend who right now is wrestling through some spiritual tension or they've been drifting spiritually, that is the day to bring them. It's going to be an unforgettable Sunday. That's kind of the month at Journey. But this month has revolved around what we believe God has called us to do as a church. It's revolved around our mission, which you hear every Sunday at our church on the screen. We exist as a church to see people far from God become passionate Christians who make a difference in the world. When we shaped this mission statement 12 years ago, we very specifically did not put the word church in it because we are not called to build the church. Jesus said he would build his church, but we have been called to build Christians who will become God's church. So we said, we're going to be in the people building business. We're going to be in the church becoming business. 
but we're going to build Christians. But anytime you put an S on the end of the word Christian, a Christian is a broken, messed up person. When you put two of them together, they are usually more broken and messed up together than they were apart. Christian, Christianity in community is broken and it's messy and it's hard. As any of you who have been around the church for a long time know, some of the deepest wounds that we have have come from Christian people in our life. So anytime you put an S on the end of the word Christian, you're like you're inviting a little conflict into your life. And in Matthew chapter 18, Jesus very specifically talks to us exactly about conflict in Christian community. I was a student pastor for 10 years. I loved almost every part of being a student pastor. The thing I hated about being a student pastor was trying to make teenagers um, make friends with each other, be friends with each other, stay friends with each other. You have all these kids who don't have any Christian friends, but they're not Christian friends with each other. Like I felt like my whole job as a youth pastor was trying to help people become friends, uh, be friends, stay friends. And it was like herding cats. Like it was a miserable experience. I used to think as a youth pastor, I can't wait till I get to work with adults who on their own, will make friends, be friends, and stay friends with other Christians just because they have a maturity to them that kids do not have. Now that I've been a pastor for 10 years, adults are harder than students to try to make be friends, stay friends, remain friends with people in Christian community. Like, if I could, like, warp back, I think I'd go straight to preschool because they are the only ones who walk in a room and are just friends with everyone. Everybody else is eyeing out like, yes, no, where do I need to go? Christian community is hard. But man, when it's healthy, it's the greatest thing in the world. And as we look at, if you look at the Bible study title today, kind of the heart of spiritual community, you're going to learn that God's community should be, should be characterized by two things. It should be a community of restoration and it should be a people of forgiveness. I believe if the outside world saw God's church as a community where people are restored, filled with people who forgive, that they would be much more attractive to what God is doing in us and what God could do in them. Our entire message today, Matthew 18, will revolve around these two things. What does it look like to be a community of restoration? How do we get there? What does it look like to be a people of forgiveness? And how do we get there if we need to get there? Before we ever open scripture and read at our church, we ask God to kind of open our hearts and get us ready to receive. So would you bow your heads with me quickly? <sighs> Take a deep breath and just kind of settle your soul into this moment. And ask God to speak to your heart today and to say to you what you need to hear. God, I cannot give today's message without the help of your Holy Spirit because there's some touchy things involved. So Holy Spirit, would you help me? Would you say what I should have said or say what I forgot to say so that people can hear from you and not me today? God, would you show us what it looks like to thrive spiritually in community and at the exact same time survive the reality of spiritual community as we open our hearts to Jesus in Matthew 18. Teach us those things. We ask you today to do it in Jesus' name. And everyone said, amen. amen. So Matthew chapter 18, the first full chapter in the New Testament devoted to Christian community. Jesus is teaching us what it looks like when his people hang out together. And he said, first, you will look like a community of restoration, number one. 
Jesus' people are a community of restoration. Look at verses 15 through 17. That's where we'll start as we work our way through Matthew 18. Jesus says, if your brother or sister, circle those three words, we'll define them in a minute. If your brother or sister sins, circle that word sin, we'll define that. If your brother or sister sins, go and point out their fault just between the two of you. If they listen to you, you have won them over. But if they will not listen, take one or two others along so that every matter may be established by the testimony of two or three witnesses. If they still refuse to listen, tell it to the church. And if they refuse to listen even to the church, treat them as you would a pagan or a tax collector. So in order for us to understand what Jesus is asking us to do here, we have to understand two real key things. One, brothers and sisters. Who are my brothers and sisters? You might say, I'm an only child. I don't have any brothers and sisters. Brothers and sisters is speaking specifically to Christian family members that you have or that you live in spiritual community with. So a brother or sister spiritually for you is somebody maybe in your small group. It's maybe somebody in your serve group. It maybe is not someone who goes to your church, but your kids play on the same sports team and they're a Christian who you have a friendship or a relationship with. In a congregation our size, not, not everyone in our church will be your spiritual family. You can't possibly have a relationship with this many people. And at a church our size, some people in your spiritual family will not go to our church. They'll be Christians that you work with, Christians that you live near, Christians that you hang out with. Your brothers and sisters spiritually are any Christians that you have a relationship with. Jesus says, look at the Christians that you have a relationship with. And then he says, notice when they sin. It's the Greek word hamartano. It literally means to miss the mark spiritually of the standards that Jesus has set for us. Jesus is basically saying, when it comes to dealing with Christian community, you need to look around at the Christians that you're friends with, and you need to notice when they're not living the way Jesus would want you to live. This is part of what it will take to live well in spiritual community. You have to look at the Christians that you're friends with, and you have to notice when they are not living the way that Jesus wants you to live. Now, here's an interesting irony about where the church is today versus where it was 2,000 years ago. I think too many people in the church today like to look at people outside the church, non-Christians, and judge them for not acting like Christians rather than to look at Christians in the church and judge them for not acting like Jesus. Like as a church, we want to judge the outside world, but have lots of grace with each other. But Jesus today tells us to do the opposite. Jesus is like, judgment is for your Christian friends who are not acting like Jesus. You got to help them. Grace is for the outside world that doesn't even know Jesus. That will help them. And in case you're trying to figure out whether you agree with me, let's just walk through some New Testament scripture because in 1 Corinthians chapter 5, Paul presents the exact same scenario to the church at Corinth where he says, judgment is for your Christian friends to help them walk with Jesus. Grace is for the non-Christian people to help them to know Jesus. What did Paul say in 1 Corinthians chapter 5, starting in verse 9? I wrote to you in my letter not to associate with sexually immoral people, but not at all meaning the people of the world, like non-Christian. Like I'm not talking about non-Christians. 
who are immoral or greedy or swindlers or idolaters, in that case, you'd have to leave the world. Paul's like, if you could not be around non-Christians, not acting like Christians, you couldn't be around anyone. So that's not what I meant. But he said in verse 11, now I'm writing to you that you must not associate with anyone who claims to be a brother, sister, a Christian who's living in all this sin, but is sexually immoral, greedy, an idolater, slander, drunkard, or swindler. Don't even eat with such people. Then he says in verse 12 and 13, something the church needs to remember 2,000 years later. What business is it of mine to judge those outside the church? Are we not to judge those inside? God's going to take care of those outside. Expel the wicked person from among you. He's talking about Christians living in sin. You got to see them. You got to do something about it. I'm not talking about non-Christians living in sin. That's what they do. We'll let God take care of that. I'm talking about your spiritual family living in sin. You got to do something about it because Christians are a community of restoration when people slip. If Paul is not enough for you, Peter in 1 Peter chapter 4 verse 17 will add to this teaching. By the way, anytime in scripture, Jesus and Peter and Paul are all saying the exact same thing, we would call that very good spiritual doctrine. Peter says in 1 Peter 4 17, it's time for judgment to begin with God's household. And if it begins with us, what will be the outcome of those who do not obey the gospel of God? Peter, Paul, Jesus all said when it comes to Christians looking at people drifting spiritually, we have to start with our spiritual family and we got to work to restore people. We could summarize the teaching of these three in 1 Corinthians eleven thirty one by saying with Paul, like if you would judge yourself, you wouldn't be judged. Like if you would just be real careful to always know how you're doing spiritually, someone wouldn't have to help you. But when you're not careful, I'm going to put other Christians in your life who can help kind of bring you back and restore you. So in Matthew 18, Jesus presents to us what I call a biblical plan for restoration but I want you to see how I wrote it because I crossed out the word confront because a lot of people read Matthew 18 as a biblical plan for confrontation. But that's not the purpose. Verse 15 says, if they listen to you when you've confronted them, you have won them over. This is a biblical plan for restoration, not confrontation. It includes the process of confrontation, but that's not the purpose. The purpose is restoration. Every now and then I'll have somebody ask me, Christian, I'm thinking about coming to your church. Do you guys practice church discipline? And I always say, tell me what you mean by that. Because I'm trying to figure out whether they have a heart to restore people or whether they just like to yell at people. So Christian, do you have a, a practice of church discipline? And I say, tell me what you mean by that. And if they're like, do you help Christians drifting spiritually and bring them back? I'm like, yep, we do that. If they're like, do you bring people up front and tell the whole church, all their sins when they sin. I say, no, only the people that wear the wrong jerseys on NFL kickoff Sundays. Other than that, we never publicly call anyone out. See, there are too many Christians who want to discipline and confront and really don't care about restoration. But this is a restoration plan. So Jesus says, let's have a plan for when Christians drift that we can like win them back. Let's have a plan that wins them back. We actually know who they are. Because in Matthew 18, 13, Jesus says, drifting Christians are like a shepherd who had a hundred sheep, and one of them begins to drift away, and good Christians see Christians that are drifting, and they go do whatever it takes to help bring them back. 
So like we see the heart of a good shepherd in this restoration plan. We know we're going to a Christian who's beginning to drift in some way and we're trying to help him. So Jesus gives us his biblical plan. It consists of four steps. I'll throw them all up and then we'll talk about them kind of one at a time. First, Jesus says like if you've got a family member spiritually who's drifting, like you got to go have a one-on-one conversation with them. Like you got to go have a personal one-on-one conversation with them. Tell them what you see for the purpose of restoration. Invite them back. If that does not work, you need to have a group conversation with them. You and two or three people in your spiritual family who already know each other, love each other, are going to go and you're going to have a conversation with this person. For the sake of restoration, you're going to say, here's what we see, here's where it leads, come on back. If that doesn't work, you're going to take somebody who has spiritual leadership in all of your eyes. Might be a Sunday school teacher, might be a small group leader, might be one of your pastors, might be a worship leader if you're on the worship team. You're going to bring in somebody and you're going to say, listen, I talked to them. I don't think they're seeing it. We together talk to them. I don't think they're seeing it. Maybe you can bring something that they're not aware of yet. I'm going to take a spiritual leader who's a spiritual leader for all of us, and I'm going to talk to them with the hopes of restoration. And if they still say, I'm just not interested in the Jesus stuff right now, then I'm going to treat them as I would treat someone who's not a Christian at all. That doesn't mean I disown them because Jesus often ate with pagan and tax collectors, and he tried to reach them and said, I've come for them. So it's not like we ignore them. We just realize that they're not following Jesus and we refuse to kind of have spiritual community with them, but we continue to pray for them. We talk to them about Jesus. We pray that they'll repent and come back. Jesus says, this is the way to get a drifting Christian to come back. I talked to a man after our 830 service today who said, God laid somebody very, very specifically on my heart that I needed to have a restoration conversation with, but I'm unsure whether or not they're really even a Christian. And I said, this process will reveal it. Like if you get to the point where you treat them like they're not a Christian, could be because they're not, and maybe the Holy Spirit will finally get a hold of their heart. Now the problem with this process is we do it, but we add one word. And that word is about. We add it to every step. We see a Christian who's drifting, and we have a personal conversation about them with someone else. And if they're like really drifting, we might have a group conversation about them with a small group. Because remember, Christians don't gossip. We just share prayer requests. And it's like, we we need to bring the whole group together because, you know, Sally's crazy. Um, Like step three, like a lot of times we'll have a conversation with spiritual leadership about someone, but not with someone. And by the time we've talked about someone to everyone in their spiritual family rather than to someone like spiritual family, most of them have realized that they're probably not a part of our spiritual family, amen? Like by the time you've treated them that way, they don't want to be a part of your spiritual family anyway. So Jesus says you got to do this the right way. But we need to understand as a Christian community, it's really important when Christians in our relationships start drifting spiritually that we go restore them to Jesus and we don't just let them keep running off, as uncomfortable as it might be. You say, why? Why, Christian? For this reason, and I want you to write it down. It'll be a fill-in-the-blank on your notes. Tolerance of sin always leads to entitlement to sin. And if we live in Christian community that tolerates sin, what we're saying is sin is no big deal and you have permission to sin. I'm not on social media, but Daniel showed me um, another friend, good friend in ministry, who disqualified himself this year. Um, Youth pastor, 
who I've done student ministry with for kind of the last 10 years, speaking at camps, doing trainings, doing Disciple Now stuff at their church, um, who had an affair, cheated on his wife, um, who got divorced, who left his kids and his grandkids, um, and who left his youth ministry and is now um, living with the person that he had an affair with. And she's like, look, here, like, here's another one that's just like disqualifying themselves with their life. And as she showed me this on social media, instead of the, fill, the feed being filled with um, criticism or condemnation of another pastor who fell, it was filled with celebration and congratulations. Because the person he cheated on his wife with, left his wife for, left his family and grandkids for, left his student ministry for, was a man, not a woman. And in our culture, the highest form of good is just to express and own your sexuality. And I thought, you cannot throw out half the Ten Commandments just so you can pursue this. Tolerance of anything that the Bible says is sin, harmatano, not God's plan for you, is entitlement to do the rest of them too. Because it just kind of all goes together. Now let me be very clear in this specific area, Okay. Pastors like me at churches like ours who have a very traditional orthodox view of scripture believe that this is not an ancient book, it's an eternal book. We believe that everything God meant when it was written, God means today. And we believe because it's timeless that it's always timely and speaks to everything in our culture. And this book has a very, very narrow gate when it comes to living in a sexuality and a sexual intimacy that God would approve of. Most of what we have lived most of our life is harmonitano. And this is the mark of what God would have. God's very narrow gate of sexuality and sexual intimacy is a husband and a wife in marriage using their sexuality to serve one another, love one another, sacrifice for one another, build a family. It's not even just sex between a man and a woman. Like it's very, very, very narrow gate. And most of us have lived outside that narrow gate most of our life or are living outside of it today. And I'll be honest, the church, thank God, has learned to live in the mess for the most part. The church has learned to live with a Christian man struggling with pornography and just say, we're, like, we're going to live in the mess and we're going to move forward together. We've learned to live in the mess of Christians who have affairs and get divorced. We've learned to live in the mess of teenagers doing things with their boyfriends and girlfriends that they shouldn't do before they're married. Like, we've learned to live in the mess of every area of sexual sin as a church, but the area of the LGBTQ community saying, I'm a Christian, I love Jesus, here's the thing I'm struggling with, what do I do? So I want to say loud and clear, the church, we have to do better there. And I'm not talking about for people outside the church. I'm not talking about making policy. I'm talking about making discipleship plans for people who say, I love Jesus but I struggle with pornography. All right, we can help with that. I love Jesus, but I had an affair. We, all right, we'll work with it. I love Jesus. Here's what's going on with my sexuality. We got to get better. But what we must not do is say, well, the Bible calls it sin, but it's really not a big deal. We must not tolerate sin because when we tolerate sin, we entitle sin. Amen. We can't say this sin is such a little deal that go ahead and break half the Ten Commandments. It just cannot work that way. Is it, is it a hard process? Yes. 
Is it an impossible process? No. Say, why? Because Jesus promises to help us. Look at verse 18. Jesus says, truly, I tell you, whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven. Whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. Again, truly, I tell you, if two of you on earth agree about anything they ask for, it'll be done for them by my Father in heaven. For where two or three gather in my name, there I am with them. Here's what you need to kind of note on your notes page. Here's what Jesus is saying. When Christians bend their will to heaven's heart for restoration, they often receive heaven's power to accomplish restoration. Jesus says, if you will work really, really hard to see the kingdom of God come on earth like it is in heaven, like if you will work towards restoration, I will help you with restoration. The lost sheep will be restored. The broken sheep will be healed. Heaven will rejoice. However, here's what you need to know. Relationships in the process will be absolutely trashed. And if you don't believe that, try to be the person on the confrontation side of restoration conversations. It is not only one of the most difficult things you'll ever do, it's one of the most painful things that you'll ever do. And it's interesting because Jesus says, we're going to restore, we're going to restore, we're going to restore, we're going to restore. But after restoration, you're probably going to have to learn to forgive because you're going to get the tar beat out of you spiritually trying to help someone who might be kicking and screaming as they run away from Jesus. Some of you, the deepest bruises of your life have been trying to restore someone who was hurting spiritually. And they hit and they kick and they scratch and they bite. And at the end of the day, they may come back to Jesus, but you say, I am never going to be their spiritual friend again. I'm, I'm glad they're back with Jesus, but I am out. So we see that Christians are a community of restoration, but they only remain a community if they're also a people of forgiveness. Because restoration is a bloody mess. And if at the end of that, you're not willing to forgive and be a people of forgiveness, your Christian community will just bounce every three to five years to a different set of people who have not hurt you, wounded you, offended you in any way. So look at how we pick this up in verse 21. Peter breaking the silence as he always does with a good question, but a stupid answer. Then Peter comes to Jesus and he asks, Lord, how many times shall I forgive my brother or sister who sins against me? Up to seven times? Here's the question that Peter's asking, so we can put it in plain English. Peter's asking this key question. How many times do I have to go through this process of restoration before I give up on someone? Like, this is going to be painful for me. It's going to be painful for them. Like, how many times do I have to do this thing? Talk to them. Bring friends to talk to them. Bring a spiritual leader to talk to them. Start praying for them like they were a lost. How many times do I have to do that before I can give up on someone? And then as only Peter often does, he answers his own question without giving Jesus a chance to respond because he believes he has the right answer that will impress Jesus. How many times do we go through this process of restoration before we give up on someone? Hang on, Jesus, don't tell me. I think I know. Seven times? And then he waited for his gold star. Because in Jewish culture, seven times would have been a really, really big deal. Jewish rabbis of the day taught that you would only do this three times. You would forgive someone of an offense three times. But after the third time, three strikes and you're out. It's why when the Hebrews created baseball, you only got three outs in an inning. None of that is true. Don't listen to that. Like the, like the three strikes in your out part is true, but they did not invent baseball. But at least now everybody's listening again. Like the Hebrew teaching was, you forgive someone three times, and if they don't snap out of it, they're out. So Peter's like, I'll double that. 
and then add one as a cherry on top, Jesus will literally look at me and say to the rest of the disciples, I don't know where Peter gets it from, but this guy's spiritual wisdom is just off the charts. That's what he was anticipating. Jeez, how often do I go through this restoration process before I give up on someone? Seven times? And Jesus, I hope there's a recording of the way he looked when Peter would say these things, because I'd like to see that in eternity one day. We can't see the look on his face, but we can imagine it. Verse 22, Jesus answers, I tell you not seven times, but 77 times. Probably the best Greek translations there say 70 times seven. Not 490, but a number that basically would mean infinity, like perfection times by perfection. Seven and 10 together plus another seven. Perfection times perfection. Like you just... You forgive as often as they need it. Verse 23, so Jesus tells a parable. He says, let me tell you how this works. He says, therefore, the kingdom of heaven is like a king who wanted to settle accounts with his servants. The question is, how often do I forgive? Jesus says, let me tell you a story. The kingdom of heaven is like a king who wanted to settle accounts with his servants. As he began the settlement, a man who owed him 10,000 bags of gold was brought to him. Since he wasn't able to pay, his master ordered that he and his wife and children and all that he had be sold to repay the debt. At this, the servant fell on his knees before him. Be patient with me, he begged. I'll pay back everything. The servant's master took pity on him, canceled the debt, and let him go. But when that servant went out, he found one of his fellow servants who owed him a hundred silver coins. He grabbed him and began to choke him. Pay back what you owe me, he demanded. His fellow servant fell to his knees and begged him, be patient with me, I'll pay it back. But he refused. Instead, he went off and had the man thrown into prison until he could pay the debt. When the other servants saw what had happened, they were outraged and went and told their master everything that had happened. Then the master called the servant in, you wicked servant, he said, I canceled all that debt of yours because you begged me to. Shouldn't you have had mercy on your fellow servant just as I had on you? In anger, his master handed him over to the jailers to be tortured until he, should be, until he should pay back all that he owed. This is how my heavenly father will treat each of you unless you forgive your brother or sister from your heart. Whoa, what a story. How often do I forgive someone? Jesus tells this incredible story. He starts by saying this, the kingdom of heaven is like this. The kingdom of heaven is the spiritual mission and the spiritual community that Jesus has invited us into. The kingdom of heaven is what lives in people who are followers of Jesus and what can live around people who are followers of Jesus if we follow the teaching of Jesus. This chapter started with this question in Matthew 18, 1. What does it take to be great in the kingdom of heaven? So this whole chapter is about being great in the kingdom of heaven. Jesus is like, pay attention to the next generation. Check. Got it. Um, Jesus is like, restore people who are wandering spiritually. Got it. Jesus is like, forgive people who have hurt you. And Peter's like, well, how many times? And Jesus is like, well, here's what it should look like and should not look like. And he tells him this story of a man who owed 10,000 bags of gold to somebody and who was owed 100 silver coins. Just so you know the denomination of the money, these, uh, bags of, these bags of gold would have been equivalent to 20 years worth of wages if you just do the math with the denomination of the Greek and Hebrew money that we're exchanging, these 100 silver coins would have been equivalent to about 100 days of work. So we got a guy who owes 20 years of wages. Let me be clear here. 
in a time period where the average age expectancy was 35. So this guy is not paying off his debt ever. He's not going to live long enough. You got a guy who owes somebody 20, basically 20 years of money, and he is owed three months of money. And Jesus said he's forgiven of the 20-year debt that he can never pay and immediately goes out and finds someone who owes him three months pay and begins to choke him and beat him and he has him put in jail till he can pay it all back. He said, Peter, that's what it looks like when one of my people who has been forgiven is trying to figure out whether or not they should forgive. See, the hero of the story is not the man and the point of the story is not the money. The hero of the story and the point of the story is the master. It's the master who canceled the debt and who gave freedom. Please learn this about our spiritual master, Jesus. The master was someone who forgave a debt that could never be repaid. And it's someone who gave the gift of freedom that could never be purchased. This master did something for the servant that the servant could never earn, never deserve, never get on his own. He could have never made enough money to pay off the debt that he was in. It would have to be canceled for him. He would have never had enough money in all the lifetimes that he could have lived to purchase the promises that God had for him, but those were gifted to him. And we have to see the master of this story as Jesus and what he's done in our story. We could never do what was needed to pay God back for the sin we've committed. So in Jesus, he cancels our debt. And we can never live perfect enough to earn our way into heaven. So in Jesus, God gifts us that promise. This is our story. We've had a debt canceled that we could never repay. And we've had a gift given to us that we could never purchase. It's our story. For anyone who's a Jesus follower, that's our story. But Jesus says, because it is your story, it is also the reason you forgive. You forgive because you understand the magnitude of forgiveness. And that changes everything. Jesus would use this verse at the very end, which was really interesting. He said, this is how my heavenly father is going to treat you unless you forgive your brother or sister from your heart. This can't mean that God won't forgive you unless you forgive. That would be salvation by works. We don't believe that. But Jesus said, there's something about your forgiveness that says something about you and God and where you're at. We would say that forgiveness allows us to live in the kingdom by the exact same way we came alive in the kingdom, by God's mercy and by God's grace. So we live the way we came alive, by giving the gifts that we have received. Now, this is not easy, but it is essential for a Jesus follower. And what, Peter, what, what Jesus is saying to Peter here is choosing not to forgive. Let me say it clearly. Choosing not to forgive creates distance between you and Jesus. And it reveals something about what you understand about you and Jesus or what you've experienced in your relationship with Jesus. About 10 years ago, I was meeting with one of my pastor coaches, Jimmy Dodd, who a lot of you know. He runs a ministry called Pastor Serve that coaches and counsels pastors. And I'd been going through a year of extreme wounds because I had been hurt and betrayed by somebody that so deeply impacted my heart. I just didn't think that I'd get over it. So like every month when I met with him, I would bring him this pain 
And I, and I would ask him to kind of medicate the pain, but not deal with the problem. And after about six months of bringing up the same issue, I'm so angry and I've been so impacted and my spirit's so negative. Jimmy looked at me and he said, you know what, Christian? He said, you know the greatest thing about what you're going through right now? And I was like, what do you mean greatest thing? I didn't even think there was a good thing about what I'm going through. He's like, no, no. He said, the greatest thing about what you're going through right now is he said, most people don't get to experience what you're experiencing. And I said, what do you mean? And he said, well, you can never really know what it took for Jesus to forgive you until you have to forgive someone who's hurt you deeply. So you have a unique experience. You get to see what it feels like being Jesus loving you. And I didn't like that. I didn't like it at all. One, I did not want to see myself hurting Jesus the way that I had been hurt. I just had myself in a different spiritual category than the person who had hurt me. And I liked a level of partnership with Jesus, honestly. I like to think of Jesus as mostly proud of what I've done and willing to kind of clean up some of the things I shouldn't have done. I never wanted to see my life of sin as hurting Jesus, betraying Jesus, going behind Jesus' back, causing pain to the heart of Jesus. I never wanted to see myself that way. Because if that's who I was and he forgave me anyway, it would mean that I owed Jesus far more than I ever had considered. Like, I would unconditionally have to give him my entire life if that's how he loved me. And I did not like being in the position to unconditionally owe anyone anything. But when I began to understand what it took for Jesus to forgive me, I thought I owe him far more than I ever could have imagined. And at the exact same time, I realized this person who had hurt me owed me far less than I had ever imagined for me to be able to forgive them. Because while I was still a sinner that wasn't even aware that I was hurting Jesus, he chose to forgive me and he told me to treat people the same way. So I found myself in this tension of realizing I owed Jesus more than I ever thought that I owed him. And at the exact same time, realizing I was owed nothing by people who had hurt me in my past in order to forgive them, not even an apology. And in that moment, Jesus became bigger and closer to my heart than he'd ever been. You see, not being able to forgive somebody says way more about you and your relationship with Jesus than you and your relationship with them. It means you've not yet understood what Jesus has done for you and you still see him as a father you're working some kind of deal out with where your good still outweighs your bad. So Jesus' forgiveness, it teaches a lot about your relationship with God. You know, John Eldridge is a great speaker, author. He's just written a book called Resiliency that's based on like how to get through the last two years for pastors. I was listening to a podcast of him discuss this book and he said the primary thing he thought was needed for resiliency was Christian community. But he defined Christian community this way. He asked a question that I honestly had to think of. He said, every Christian ought to be able to answer this question. And until they can answer this question, I'm not sure that they'll have resiliency. He said, here's the question. Who do you go to for mercy? Not when you get it right. When you get it totally wrong, who do you go to for mercy? Because if you can answer that question, you'll be okay. And if you can't, you might drift. And then he said this. Would anyone say your name to that question? 
Christian is the guy that when I get it wrong, seven times 70, I go to him and he shows me mercy. We want to become passionate Christians, plural, which means we've got a mess on our hands because there's more than one of us. I pray that you know you can come to journey for mercy. And I pray that the outside world knows that they can come to you for mercy. But that will only happen if you understand how Jesus has loved you with mercy and with grace. As we close today, say, what, what will it take to have a heart like Jesus? Great spiritual community. From time to time, restoration that's going to involve confrontation and forgiving people who have hurt you. A lot to unpack as we close, but maybe the biggest thing is this. Who are you struggling to forgive? Because what they've done to you is not as bad as what you did to Jesus. And he forgave you. Not no questions asked, but with a heart of trust, he forgave you. Who do you need to forgive? How do you need to begin walking forward in that journey? Maybe you've got some spiritual friends running in the wrong direction. Who do you need to restore? Do you need to quit talking about them and start talking to them? Important lessons for spiritual community from Matthew 18. What has God said to your heart? What do you need to do to respond? As we close in prayer, I hope you'll be thinking of those things. Would you bow your heads and close your eyes with me as we close in prayer today? Heads are bowed and eyes are closed all over the room, but hearts are open. I'm going to start with Christians today. Who do you need to forgive? Would you ask Jesus to help you forgive them like he forgave you? You owe Jesus far more than you ever could have imagined. And frankly, people owe you far less than you imagined for you to be able to forgive them. You just have to express the love of Jesus in you. Would you ask for his help? Who do you need to restore? Someone in your spiritual community, they're running off. You see it. You don't want to be judgmental, but Jesus says, you got to see it and do something about it. Do you pray that God will give you the courage, opportunity to have that first one-on-one conversation with them, not about them? And if and when they bruise your heart, would you be ready to forgive Let me talk to those of you who aren't Christians. Heads are still bowed and eyes are still closed. Man, I think the thing I want you to hear from today's message is that the spiritual master, Jesus desires to forgive you of a debt that you cannot repay. And he desires to give you the spiritual gift of salvation and eternal life that you couldn't purchase if you had all the money in the world. All you have to do is receive it. The Bible says that if you will repent, which means you stop living for yourself and you start living for Jesus, and if you will believe that it's only through Jesus' death and resurrection that you can be forgiven and have eternal life, that you'll be saved. Forgiven, changed, made eternal. If you've never done that, you can do that this morning. Right where you're seated from your heart to heaven, you don't have to pray out loud, but you can pray something like this, an invitation to say yes to Jesus. Just Right where you are, pray something like this. God, I need you. You can repeat it after me. God, I need you. Today by faith, which means I don't understand it all, but I'm willing to believe in Jesus. Today I repent of living life for me. 
and I want to start living life for you. Today I believe that Jesus died for my sin and he rose for my eternal life. So today I ask you, Jesus, to forgive me of my sin, to cleanse me of my past, to heal me of my hurts, to lead me into my future. Today, by repenting and believing, I choose to become a follower of Jesus. Thank you for loving me, for forgiving me, and for saving me. If you just pray that prayer with me in just a second, I'll let you know how you can tell us so we can give you some resources and begin to walk with you spiritually. As we close our prayer time today, we're going to close by praying over a special group of people. There is no spiritual community, spiritual care, spiritual restoration, even lessons on forgiveness at our church without our community groups, our discipleship groups. So as we close today, we're going to close by serving communion to all of our group leaders, whether you're a student leader, all the way through home groups, followers made, leaders made, our discipleship tracks, a table host. If you lead today, we want to close today's service by taking communion together and then by praying over you as you begin this semester of spiritual care and restoration for people in our church. So would you stand with me as we close our prayer time? Everyone stand if you would. God, as we get ready to close in worship and in communion for our ministry leaders, we thank you for Jesus and his ministry of restoration to us. We thank you for Jesus and his willingness to forgive us. We remember that and celebrate that as we prepare as leaders to take communion today. And Lord, we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.